15 or so months, it's that you and I are not really in control of that much. You know, we have modern technology that lets us do things that in generations would be perceived as supernatural. So that kind of gives us the illusion that we're in control of things sometimes, but we're really not. Um, whether it's natural disasters, you know, California fires, or I grew up in the Midwest, or tornadoes out there, whether it's natural disasters, or sickness, or death, or even just traffic. That's all it takes for us to be reminded that we are really pretty much powerless in this. We can't control what goes on. All it takes is one phone call of tragic news to remind you, I'm helpless here. I can't do anything about this. And I want to look today at someone in the Bible who, though all humans are basically powerless, this guy more than anyone else. This could be the poster boy of powerlessness. For most of his life, he didn't control where he lived. He didn't control what he said. He didn't control how he behaved. He was completely dominated by something other than himself. And what we're going to learn is that the only hope for this man in Scripture is the only hope for you and I. And that is the all-surpassing power of Jesus Christ. So if we would, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and we're going to be starting in verse 26. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. <clears throat> it's a bit of a longer section, but I'm just going to read through it to begin with, because I'm going to say a bunch of stuff today, but only these words are inspired. So as long as I get that out there, we're good. So let's start in chapter 8, verse 26. Then they, that's Jesus and the disciples, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came onto the land, Jesus was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house, but in tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out in a loud voice and fell before him, and said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus said to him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it to the whole city and out in the country, and the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to see Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked Jesus to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And Jesus got into the boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him 
that he might accompany him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming through the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Kind of a bizarre story. Of all the demon encounters in the New Testament, this is the longest by far, with the most detail. And actually, if, if you want something to do later this week, you could read through just the first 13 chapters of Luke and mark every time there's an encounter with a demon, because it's pretty frequent. But for some reason, Luke decided to dedicate all this time to this story in particular. And what we're going to see is that every detail points to the same truth. Every detail, even the pigs, even the weird details of the story point to one fact, and that is the power of Jesus. Now, if we look at the broader section here, the broader context in Luke, look at the passage right before, I, before ours. Jesus stills the sea. He has authority over nature. Then in our passage, he has power and authority over demons. The one immediately after our passage, he heals the woman with the issue of blood. And then after that, he raises someone from the dead. So the picture that Luke is painting here is Jesus, power over nature, power over demons, power over sickness, power over death itself. So you can see this whole section is like a crescendo leading up to show us the power of Jesus. So keep that in mind as we're reading through. Every detail is pointing to that central truth. So first, we're going to look at the terrible power of demons. The terrible power of demons. Reading just the first section there, it's pretty easy to see that the demons are the most powerful force in this region. The people there couldn't do anything to stop them. They even tried with chains, and the chains didn't work. They tried with guards, and the guards didn't work. And it got so bad, they just stopped walking that way. They just didn't even walk in that direction anymore. They would go around to just avoid it because they could do nothing to overcome the demons. And then we look at this poor man who's totally powerless. He was isolated, lived in the tombs outside of the city. Now, I don't know if any of you happen to have been isolated in the last year or so, but we've seen the effects of that on some people, just being locked alone. And they can even Zoom. They can call people, but not this guy. All he had with him was demons, totally alone. Luke tells us it was for a long time. I don't know exactly what that means, but it could be years, could have been decades, totally isolated with no company except the voices of demons. Not only that, what they did do, they ripped his clothes off, so he's totally exposed. He was dirty because he lived out there by himself. He was unkept. Mark tells us he used to gash himself with rocks, so he had open wounds and scars all the time. And he would chase people around and scare people. That was the life of this man because the demons had total power over him. He couldn't do anything to fix it. In this wretched state, he terrorizes everyone in the town. And uh, from his perspective, obviously it was terrible. So the first section of this story, what we need to mark is the power of the demons. The reality is that Satan is not omnipotent, but he's more potent than you. He's not all powerful like God, but spirits like this are more powerful than humans because they are, you might know, angels that fell from heaven. Now, they are only allowed to do what God allows them to do, which we know from the book of Job. They don't just run around doing what they wish. They are still under the control of God. As Luther would say, even the devil is God's devil. Even the devil does only what God allows him to do. 
But the first purpose of the demons in this story is to show their power and the powerlessness of man. But this isn't a story about demons. The main purpose that they play is to magnify the power of Christ. So we see the terrible power of demons, but now we're going to look at the superior power of Christ. Jesus shows that he is more powerful than the demons, and understanding how powerful they are is going to serve to show how powerful Christ is when he overcomes them. That's why their strength is being built up in the story here, so that when they fall, it's even more spectacular to show what Christ is capable of. And there are two details here in the text that are a bit bizarre that serve that purpose. First of all, why does Jesus ask for the demon's name? In the rest of the Gospels, you might remember when the demons are being expelled, they come out and they'll say, I know who you are, Holy One of God, or you are the Christ. And what does Jesus do? He silences them. He doesn't even let them talk. So why in this case is he doing the exact opposite of his normal protocol? Well, there's two reasons for that. One, the main reason that Jesus silences the demons is to not have his messiahship or his lordship revealed in any way other than his own terms. Because he's revealing his kingship and his messiahship through his actions and through his words, and the demons are trying to do that for him. So that's typically why he silences them. But in this instance, he's in a Gentile area. So it's not that big of a deal if Gentiles who don't know maybe what the Messiah is hear that he's the Messiah. You know, doesn't mean anything to them. But the other reason, the more important reason, because remember, every detail of this passage points to the power of Christ. The main reason he asks their name is to show how many there were in there. Why does God ever ask questions? Right? Moses, what's in your hand? A stick. Did God not know there was a stick in his hand? God doesn't ask questions. Jesus doesn't ask questions to gain information. That's why you and I ask questions. He asks them for a teaching purpose. Jesus asked the name of this demon so that the people around him would hear and so that it would be recorded in Scripture. And the purpose is the name Legion is significant. A Roman Legion, to the people reading this or hearing this at the first time, would have immediately thought of a large number of troops. Two to 6,000 troops is what would have immediately come into their mind. So they hear Legion, they think, there are thousands of demons in this guy? That's why it's recorded here, to show us once again that the power of the demons is being emphasized. There might be thousands in this guy. So it's going to be even more spectacular when Christ casts them out. The second bizarre detail in this text has to do with the pigs. Why the pigs? I remember reading this when I was young and being totally confused. What is going on here? Well, Bertrand Russell was an atheist philosopher in the last century. He wrote a little essay titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. Not surprisingly, the essay did not include that he was blinded by Satan and dead in his sin. But he had all these problems with scripture. He said, you know, Jesus could have done this better and God could have done this better. And one of the issues he raises is the pigs. This comes up in his little essay. And this is what he says. He says, there is the instance of the Gadarene swine where it certainly was not very kind to the pigs to put out the devils into them and make them rush down the hill into the sea. So this is his complaint. He says, Jesus was not nice to the pigs. That's why I'm not a Christian. Okay. But why were they there? 
Now remember, so here's something interesting too. We can flip back to Luke 1. If you want to follow along, you can. We're going to look at a couple different passages in Luke. I know uh, Pastor Travis does sequential exposition, which is great. That's the only way to get the full picture. So preaching one-off sermons like this is kind of difficult. But uh, at this point, if we were in chapter 8, we would have looked at chapter 1 already. And just read the first four verses with me. This is Luke giving the reason he wrote the gospel. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Verse 4, this is the important part, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke came along after the fact and gathered everything together about Jesus. And he put it all together because he wants Theophilus to know exactly who Jesus is and exactly what Jesus did. So one day, I don't know who he spoke to, but Luke is gathering the information from eyewitnesses. And he hears about the swine and he says, ooh, write that down. That has to go in there. Theophilus has to know about the swine that ran down the hill into the water. So it's not just a minor detail. Luke put this here on purpose. And again, the broader context helps us out. This is going to somehow point to the power of Christ. And you may have picked up on it already. Luke says there were many pigs. Mark tells us there were 2,000 pigs. And once again, just like the legion, pointing to the number of the pigs emphasizes the power of the demons, showing there were thousands of demons. Once again, if he just said legion, if that's all we knew about him and the pigs were left out of the story... People might speculate, well, that was really symbolic. There's probably like five or six demons, right? Earlier in Luke 8, we learned about a woman who had seven. So maybe Legion was just like 12, 20. No, no, no. Thousands. This is evidence of the magnitude of the demons that were in this man. So that once again, when Jesus casts them out, we know his power, not the power of the demons. The point is to focus on Jesus. That's why the pigs are there. That's why the name is included. Because one demon is powerful than humans. We see, again, throughout the book, people who, for their whole life, are crippled or tortured or injured by demons, and they can do nothing about it. But Jesus sends out thousands in one conversation, one of which could have dominated the region. But Jesus comes in and sends thousands to flight. This is why all these details matter. They're all pointing to the fact that he is more powerful than any other human who has ever lived. He's not like other humans. He's God. <laughs> That's the point of what we're looking at here. The significance of casting out demons is huge. We're familiar with the New Testament, so it's like, yeah, you know, Jesus woke up, put on his sandals, he had breakfast, and then he cast out demons. That's just what he does, right? Because we're so familiar with it. But let's look at a few other passages in Luke that help us understand how significant that is. Before we look at them, just to put it in perspective, there are more instances of demons being cast out in the Gospel of Luke alone than the entire Old Testament. This is a big deal. When Jesus shows up, this just starts happening all over the place. So first, let's look at Luke 4. Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be looking around verse 36. 
pardon me, verse 31. Luke chapter 4, 31. And Jesus came down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Keep that word in your mind, authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a spirit, by an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm. Now, make note of this verse. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. They, see, the original audience, they knew this is bizarre. This is a unique power that this man has to cast out demons. This is uncommon. So as we're reading through this, we kind of have to keep saving ourselves from familiarity with the text. I'm like, okay, of course he casts out demons. He's Jesus. Hello. No, no, no. This should be shocking, like it was to the original audience. So the first thing to know when Jesus casts out demons, this is a unique power. No one else has this. This is a unique power. We learn more about that in Luke 11. If you want to flip over there. Luke 11:20, 20, just one verse to read here. He's in a dispute with the Pharisees. They say, you cast out demons by the devil's power. But this is Jesus' response. <clears throat> he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God. So they knew that he had unique power, that he had unique authority. And here he's saying what it is, the finger of God. That should bring up in your mind Old Testament phrases like in Exodus when the plagues were coming on Egypt and the magicians did their parlor tricks. They were able to keep up pretty good for a while. And then eventually they, one plague came and the magicians came before Pharaoh and said, surely this is the finger of God. This can only be done by the power of God is what they were saying. And that's an idiom from the Old Testament to show God's direct interaction. It's his direct power in a situation. So the power to cast out demons is unique, it's uncommon, it's amazing, and it can only be done by God. So demons can only be cast out by God. Jesus casts out demons. Jesus is God. That's what we should see. When Jesus casts out demons every single time, that's evidence, God. This is God. Uh, that's one problem with those who deny the deity of Jesus. How is he doing this? How, where did he get this power from? Because it's an errant power. It's his own power. When the disciples do it, they do it, it says uh, over in uh, 1017, they do it in Jesus' name, not on their own authority. But Jesus does it by his own power. And then the second half of this verse here, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Casting out demons was also evidence of his messiahship evidence that he was the long-awaited Messiah. And even when John, as you know, John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah, he sends some people out to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus gives a list of things he's done. He says, tell John, I've, I've given sight to the blind, I've raised the dead, and cast out unclean spirits. The casting out of demons is evidence of his deity and evidence that he is the Messiah. So whenever we see these stories, it doesn't always lay it out like that for us, but whenever we see demons cast out, that's what we have to keep in mind, is that 
this is significant. This isn't just Bible stories, but there is a purpose to the power that's displayed by Jesus. One final point on the demons. Christians have a tendency, I'm guilty of it, because demons do exist. They are in the world today. And there are probably legitimate stories that you know of of people that have had encounters with them. I know John MacArthur has an encounter written in one of his books. John Piper talks about it. And the tendency among Christians is to talk about these like they're ghost stories. Oh, I've heard of a spookier one. And then you just keep bringing them up. And then that conversation ends with what? Everyone going, oh, this was interesting. And then walking away with just a little bit of fear in their heart. Just a little bit of fear of demonic power. But the reality is, our shepherd casts out thousands with a word. And if you are abiding in Christ, and Christ is abiding in you, you have nothing to fear. So it's good for Christians to study these things. It's good for Christians to be aware of them, but not in a way that leads us to fear if we are in Christ, which this man was not until Christ saved him. So we've seen the the terrible power of demons. There were thousands of them. They were totally able to break chains, to overcome the humans in the area, and in one afternoon, Jesus comes in, gone. This is the power of Jesus. And then finally, we see two responses to the power of Christ. Read with me beginning in verse 35, back in chapter 8 now, if you need to reorient. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 35, says, The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported it to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked Jesus to leave them. For they were gripped with great fear. And he got in a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming to the whole city the great things that Jesus had done for him. So we see the two responses to the work of Jesus. We see the people who were there that were fearful. And there's some speculation. What were they fearful of? A lot of people like to say that they were fearful because they lost the pigs. They lost some livestock, some money. I think that's probably irritating or annoying. I don't doubt that it did bother them. But that's not really the picture that's painted here. You can look back even to just verse 25 after Jesus calmed the storm. Uh, Jesus said to them, where is your faith? And they, the disciples, disciples, were fearful. And that's a common thing. Jesus comes in, he does something only God can do, and people are fearful. So I don't think it has to do with the pigs. I think it's a natural response to divine action. I think this is the natural response to deity, as they see Jesus act like God and they're fearful. You can disagree with me. That's okay. But that's what I think. So they were fearful, and the second is the man who loved Jesus, begged to go with him. This is the response of every true believer. Like Paul said, it's better for me if I go away and be with Christ. It's better for me. 
And this is a good way of just checking your own heart. If you profess to be a Christian here today and going to be with Christ is somehow not appealing because you'd miss out on something in the world, that might be a sign that your faith is either lacking or not genuine. If you don't desire to go and be with Christ more than you desire to be in this world. That's the reality of true believers. But just like this man, we are sent out into the world. Like Paul said, I'm going to stay because that's what God has given me to do. And that's what we're given to do as believers. Interestingly, in the beginning of this chapter, Jesus gives the parable of the sower, which you may know as the sower goes out and throws seed on different ground. And depending on the type of soil, the seed either grows and produces fruit or does not for various reasons. Two of those responses, Jesus explains, he says, the seed, which is the word of God, felt that fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked out with the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. That's what we just saw. We just saw a live action illustration of this parable, of the seed being thrown out there, and one group of people, they hear it and they walk away and they actually ask Jesus to leave. And then the end of the parable, the seed that is in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So what we see here at the end of this story of the demoniac is that parable being played out in real life. The same message, the same Christ, the same action, some believe and some walk away hard-hearted, casting Jesus out of their region. I just thought that was an interesting point, that again we see why and how Luke has constructed all of these to go together. Something interesting that I, I didn't think about, and I, it just struck me a night or two ago, was how this man felt about how his peers saw him. How this man felt about his reputation that he'd given now, in this room, with this many believers, this many people, we represent a multitude of sins between all of us together. Some private, some in your own heart, but some public. Some that other people have seen. Some that have been shameful publicly. Whether it's lying, you get caught in lies whether it's a wicked tongue of tearing people down and just explosions of anger where people have seen you in that state, whether it's to do with relationships. The reality is we were sinners and we sin publicly, not just privately. And think about this man. The whole town saw him dirty and naked and crazy and cutting himself and scaring people. And what does Jesus say to him? He doesn't say, well, you know, you've really just, you've soiled your reputation here. You need to go to another town. He sends him right back in, clothed and clean and a new man. And if you're here today and you have public sins, shameful sins, that you're worried about this body of believers treating you differently because of those things, that's not how Christians behave. I was reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But 
you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul is saying, you were the adulterers and the adulterers and the fornicators. That's you guys. But you were washed. And it's the same with this man. He, indecency in is too mild of a word to explain what he had done and how people had seen him. But he's been washed. And Jesus treats him according to his own merit. As believers, we're not treated, we're not seen by God according to our sin. That's substitutionary atonement. What that means is we are seen by God as if we had lived Christ's life. No matter what shame you've brought on yourself, no matter what you've done in front of other people or privately, when God looks at us, he looks at us according to the righteousness of Christ. Because on the cross, our unrighteousness, our shame, our guilt was imputed to him and his righteousness imputed to us. And that's how we see each other as believers, right? I've been washed. You've been washed. I see you the way that Christ has made you, not according to your past sin. And that's how Jesus treats this man. He just says, go back. Go back where you were. He treats him how he sees him as his new self, not as his old self. So there are a few lessons we can take away from this story, aside from that one. We see the power of Jesus over the tremendous power of demons, and we also see the compassion of Jesus. Right? This man was not only not Jewish, he was unclean. He lived among dead people. That's huge, a huge no-no. Very unclean. And the story after this, he heals a woman who's unclean again. So we see the compassion of Jesus for those people who are either caught in their sin or oppressed by the effects of sin. And you may look at this story, you may look at the demoniac and say, great for him. <laughs> That's terrific. I'm glad he got help. But I am nothing like that guy. I have virtually nothing in common with that guy except that we both have two legs. That's about it. Beyond that, nothing in common. But I want to show that sinners, if you're a believer in here today, this is before you were saved, and if you're not a believer, this is you now, are just as bound as this man was, just as dominated as this man was. First of all, you may not have been demon-possessed, and you may not be demon-possessed, but we were all under the influence of Satan. Ephesians 2.2, 2, Paul says that, speaking to believers, he says, you used to walk according to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. And he's not saying that to someone specifically. He didn't write the letter and say, Jim, there in the congregation, that guy used to walk according to Satan. He's saying it to all the Christians. Anyone who reads that letter, that's who he's talking to. He says, you used to walk according to Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul once again says, The God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Again, and he's saying this generally about all unbelievers. In 2 Timothy 2.26, Paul says that unbelievers are in the snare of the devil and held captive to do his will. That might be the strongest language, but then in 1 John 5.19, John says the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. This is the reality for people who are outside of Christ, is that you are guided by Satan and doing his will in the earth. Secondly, we're dominated by sin. It's not as if we are unwilling servants of Satan, but we are born into sin in a sinning way where we willingly go along with his plans. Ephesians 2, again, verses 1 and 3 says, You were dead 
in your trespasses and sins, and by nature children of wrath. He's saying this isn't something that you had nurtured into you or that society came along and corrupted you. You're born this way with this nature inside of you. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, But the natural man, that's the man in sin, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So not only do they not want to understand it, they can't even understand it because they don't have the Spirit to illuminate it. And then finally, perhaps most damningly, Jesus himself says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You may be familiar with the verse that says, He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Right? Well, an old Puritan reworked that and he said, Unless the Son makes you free, you are slaves indeed. Slaves to sin, slaves to your lusts, slaves to creatures, and slaves to the devil by whom you are taken captive to do his will. And that's the biblical picture. You may not have been demon-possessed, but if we run through this list here, you walk according to Satan, you are blinded by Satan, you do his will, you live in his world, you are dead in your sins, you are naturally a child of wrath, you don't accept the things of the Spirit of God, you can't understand the Spirit of God, and you're a slave to sin. So you may not have had 2,000 demons in you, but you were bound by sin and doing the will of Satan. And as helpless to save yourself as he was. Just as that demoniac ran around and could do nothing to improve his situation, that's the situation that you and I are born into. And the reality is, unless Jesus saves you like he did this man, you will not be saved. If Jesus didn't cross the, the lake, if he didn't go to the Gerasenes, that man would have died in the tombs with the demons still in him. Unless Jesus saves you, you will not be saved. Look at verse 28. Let's learn something else about the demons that will help us with this. Verse 28, seeing him, the demon cried out, fell before him, and said with a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. We know from James 2.19 that even the devils know God and shudder. They know who God is, they believe he is who he says he is, and they fear. And we see that in the demons here. They know who Jesus is. They don't even put up a fight because they know they'll lose because they know who he is. But their believing didn't do them any good. Right? What I want to say today is you won't be saved unless Jesus saves you, first of all. Second of all, don't believe like the demons. They got the facts right. They affirmed that the facts were true. But that's not enough. If you're here today and you read the Bible and you say, okay, I know what it says, that's not enough. Even if you say, I know what it says and I believe it's true, that's not enough. You have to believe it's true and put your faith on Christ as your only hope in life and death and repent of your sins. You have to go all the way to the end. Another Puritan wrote, Knowledge without repentance is but a torch that lights the path to hell. He said it's not enough to know if you don't put your faith in Christ. And I want to urge you today, you get good preaching in this church. How many churches have a Bible reading, a catechism question, and another scripture reading, and then a pastor who preaches through the book of John verse by verse? 
And I bring all that up to say what a shame it would be to die in hell under the wrath of God with a mind full of solid biblical exposition. Don't leave here today with just the knowledge. Christ came to die for sinners, and if you put your faith in him, you will be saved. And if you don't, there's no hope, just like this man. But Jesus saves sinners. So believe today and be saved. One final point, and I do mean final. This is the very end. Look at verse 28. You say, the demons say, don't torment me. And then in verse 31, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. What does that mean? The abyss, without going into the details, is a prison for particular demons. There's a reason it's there. You can read about that in Jude and in 2 Peter. But the reality is, in Matthew, in the same account, the demons ask Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? Because they know a time is coming when their time is up, when their time will finally be limited. They can't do what they've been doing forever. And we read about that. Uh, I liked the scripture reading today, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. We read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enabled him to subject all things to himself. And all I want to say, just in closing, is that we are all powerless on a personal level, like I brought up before with sickness, with death, with Wi-Fi, with traffic. We are not in control of that much. But then on a global level, um, you think about the crimes that exist in this world in systems that make millions of dollars that I won't name. Um, you think about the people in control of the world and the wickedness that goes on from the top to the bottom. And what can we do about it? A little bit more than some people, maybe. But the reality is, not much. But just like these demons knew their time was coming, we know a time was coming when the Lord will come and he will reign and exact perfect justice, where every wrong will be righted, finally, forever. And we will reign with him in a time with no sickness, no death, no natural disasters, no wicked leaders, and best of all, no sin in my own heart, forever. This is the power of Christ that we will see one day. And this is the hope we have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us a reliable testament of who Christ is, a reliable narrative, a reliable story that we can know who Christ is and what he did. And we can know that he came to seek and save the lost that he came to deliver us from the oppression of sin. And I pray for any heart in here today that knows the truth but has yet to put their faith in it, I pray that they would see the inescapable reality that you are their only hope and that you would soften their heart. I thank you for saving us. I thank you for saving me, for dying in my place and giving us your obedience. And I thank you for all of this. In your own name, amen.